What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Capera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You're almost constantly assuming that someone's about to try and kill you. You're surrounded by 700 plus murderers. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston, and today I'll be talking to Bill Nagara about his experiences in dealing with Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, while serving time with him on San Quentin's Death Row. Ramirez was sentenced to death in 1989 after he was convicted of murdering 13 people, having failed at murdering five others and raped 11 women. He killed his victims with a gun, a machete, a claw hammer. He worshipped the devil. During trial, he taunted the families of his victims, threatened to kill his lawyer, and showed no remorse for his sickening trail of carnage. In 1996, while awaiting execution, he got married. Good for him. He died in 2013 at age 53 of lymphoma. I really hate running into my neighbor. Mostly I don't know his name and it's too late in the relationship to ask. Now imagine your neighbor is this guy, Richard Ramirez. This is Death Row Diaries. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Death Row Diaries. All right, let's get to it. As far as Satan is concerned, I, I believe a, in a malevolent being. Uh, his description eludes me, but I, I have felt powers that are evil. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. I'm talking to Bill Nagara. And what are we discussing tonight? Who are we? Who are we talking about tonight? We're still reviewing um, San Quentin um, Penitentiary of Horror, which is my latest uh, manuscript. And today's episode is going to be about um, kind of a different spill today. We have a the previous two episodes, we've talked about the, you know, possible possession, um, and then we've talked about this um, this shadow that continues to appear, and many people have spoken about. But today is a little bit different. We're, we're going to talk about uh, a person that uh, all of our viewers or audio listeners obviously know about, and that is uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Uh, a man notorious for his um, antics during his serial killer spree. And um, pretty much the world knows who this guy is. And today's episode will be about, uh, well, his ghost, you know, him reappearing to people um, on death row. 
Yeah, so this guy, you, what was your extent of interacting with, with this guy? Well, uh, Richard Ramirez lived on the fourth tier, which is the same tier I live on. He was in cell 110. Um, he didn't live very close. I'm in cell 77. However, he walked by all the time. and I mean, it's, it's really hard to miss the guy because of his notorious nature and, and how he was. Um, the, the interesting part about this guy, well, there's a lot of parts about him that are very interesting, but things that people really don't know about is that this guy, uh, was pretty much groomed to be a serial killer. I mean, we've talked about other guys who become serial killers and they had traumatic episodes in their life, which made them react differently. This guy is a little bit different. He was trained to be a serial killer, and it started off with his, um, at, at age 12, his uh, cousin, Miguel Ramirez, a decorated U.S. Army Green Beret combat veteran, uh, you know, would, started grooming him to be this guy that he turned out to be. Uh, Miguel was a rapist, a murderer. Uh, he also shared photographs of young Richard, including ones of Vietnam women that he had raped and murdered, and he didn't had photos of them with their heads severed off. And all these things he fed to a young Richard Ramirez. And going as far that in 1973, in the presence of Richard Ramirez, uh, Miguel shot his wife in the face right in front of him with a revolver killing her. Yeah, so pretty pretty soon after that, he got started... uh committing pretty heinous crimes, right? Um, it took a couple more years. Um, his, you know, uh, Miguel, his um, cousin, went to jail for killing his wife, obviously, but he was placed in a Texas state mental hospital. And, um, you know, he, any Richard is kind of shuffled off to the husband of his sister, who is an obsessive peeping Tom. And this guy would take Richard along during the night on these excursions to look in on women as they were sleeping, showering, doing whatever. So, I mean, this guy went from a killer to a peeping Tom, and then Miguel's released from prison or from the mental hospital. And here again, his education continues. And it isn't much after that, that as, as a teen, that Richard Ramirez takes a job at the Holiday Inn. And, you know, his employment there ended when one of the members, one of the hotel, um, uh, I guess people are renting a room for the evening, walk in and find Ramirez attempting to rape his wife. So you, you can see already, as a teenager, he's really on this path, and he. He's not going to uh, change. He likes this. This is what he do, does. And then in his, his first murder, which a lot of people don't know about, was on April 10th, 1984, in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco, where he raped and killed a nine-year-old child, a little girl. And uh, this case was not initially linked to him, but years later through DNA. But 
it's obvious it was him. The first case that the general public knew about was on June the 28th, 1984, where he goes into the home of um, Joni Zenkow, um, and um, you know, he murders her. He um, leaves a fingerprint there, and this is where his, his episode as a serial killer really began. Um, he is uh, he he does these two murders in succession, April 10th, June 28th, and then it takes almost another year. On March the 17th, 1985, is when the real um, Night Stalker begins his his tear across across California, starting with uh, Maria Hernandez um, shooting her in the garage of her Rosemead home, and then entering the house and killing her roommates. And that's where it starts. Right, and that was a spree, um, but he was also a serial killer, right? Yeah, you know, he, this guy was, um, yeah, for lack of a better term, he was kind of a combination killer. You know, you have serial killers who have an MO, a type, what they do, and how they do it. This guy was all over the place. He, yeah, he's a serial killer, obviously. But he's also a spree killer because um, after, obviously, on, June, on March 17th, 1985, where he shoots Marie Hernandez and kills her roommates, within an hour, he pulls over Veronica Yu and in Monterey Park, shoots her twice, and uh, it, it just, this guy does not let up. So he's a spree killer, he's a serial killer, he's a rapist, he's a burglar. He's a lot of different things, and then, again, the other thing that a lot of people don't know about this guy is that he's also a child molester. I mean, it, that's a rare combination. You have a guy who goes after elderly women, goes after young women, he kills men, he kills children, he rapes children. This is an, kind of an oddball guy when it comes to serial killers. He's not the typical guy that you would think. Right. Um, and he gained a lot of notoriety because he had this sensational name, the Night Stalker, and it was also the Los Angeles area, and he became famous, right? Yeah, because of so many killings in such a short period of time, March 17th, March 27th, May 14th, um, May 29th, and it just continues July the 2nd. These are July the 5th. These are all the nights that he killed, sometimes two, sometimes two, three people in one night. Uh, he didn't get that name, Night, the Night Stalker, until a little bit later on in his... They were looking for a name. This is part of the reason that some serial killers become famous, other ones don't. It has a lot to do with the media. If they're spree killers or, or they're, they're serial killers that do things in succession, the media catches on and they give him a nickname, which becomes sensationalized. Others that kill people in a long period of time, over years or decades, don't get that much notoriety because they're not heard of so much. But the Night Stalker stuck after a few of his killings, and an L.A. reporter began to call him this. It stuck. But if we, if we can pause for a minute, the real Night Stalker was actually the Golden State Killer, the guy that they caught only a few months ago, and he, and because of DNA testing through one of those um, genealogy uh, websites, 
that is the original Night Stalker. That was a name given to me in the 1970s. Richard Mears didn't come around until 1984, and somebody dubbed him that name, but he's not the original Night Stalker. The Golden State Killer was. So his his trials were quite well publicized. He offered no remorse, from what I understand. Is that right? Yeah, none whatsoever. I mean, I mean obviously not funny, but um, he, he killed so much. And when they give him, you know, he was actually convicted on September 20th, 1989, of 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. And when they gave him a death sentence, I mean, his response was, big deal, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. That was kind of his, um, you know, his, like, I don't care attitude. But see, I know different. That's the persona he put out for BSC. He's a tough guy and all these things that people in the media portrayed him to be. But the fact of the matter was, he came to death row. And that didn't fly. He walked out to a normal yard. You have 60 seconds remaining. And within seconds, he got beat up. Uh, he was taken inside, was taken to the hospital. He was you know, given medical care. And he thought maybe it was a, a fluke. So he goes out again, and this time they stab him. So the tough guy act just went out the window. He, he wasn't a tough guy. He was a guy who had notoriety because of his crimes, but on death row at San Quentin, doesn't matter what you did on the streets. It's about what potential you had in here to obtain the ultimate goal, which is to kill somebody else, another convict. And he had zero in that, in that department. It was not appreciated by the other people on death row that he had raped and killed children and women and other people, right? Yeah, that's a big no-no in prison for convicts. And um, I think you and I have discussed this in the past, but um, look, uh, there's a lot of bad people in prison. Uh, most guys on death row have killed somebody at the end unless they're innocent. But a guy who robs and kills people, uh, bank robber, a guy does burglaries, but when you cross that line, and you become a child molester or a child guy hurts kids in any way, shape, or form. And worse, you become a guy that kills out of sexual gratification, basically a serial killer. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're killing women or men. If you're a serial killer with some type of sexual gratification, it's a, it's a convict's code. It's an unwritten rule that every convict in prison when you see a serial killer, you're supposed to try and kill him on the spot. Why? Because serial killers give convicts or criminals a bad name. And I know that sounds a little way out, but some, a lot of criminals that are convicts have a code of ethics. And that code is business is business. But if you rape a woman or if you rape a child or kill a child or you're a serial killer, it's open season on you. Richard Ramirez, as soon as he was placed on death row and given that sentence, there were people waiting on him. They were waiting to get their hands on him. They were trying to kill him. So after that second, I believe, third time that he was assaulted and stabbed, he never came out again. 
the entire time that Richard Ramirez spent on death row, he never, after those three times, went outside. He stayed in his cell. That tells you the kind of, well, let's be honest, the kind of coward that he was. Yeah, and from what I understand, besides his crimes, which I'm sure was the main reason he was not liked, but even apart from that, his behavior uh, inside prison was not appreciated. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the, the whole sexual thing and the whole devil-worshipping thing and Satanism, a lot of guys, I mean, it's their own business what anybody does in their cell, but he, people just really disliked him for the obvious reasons. But yeah, he he was kind of known as being the porn king in cricket here. He, you know, he never went outside, but some people dealt with him, people without any kind of ethics, and people didn't have any. And I know that sounds kind of funny to the audience to hear that guys in prison have ethics. As twisted as it may sound, they do have standards that are about criminals. If you're a criminal, you have a particular set of ethics that you don't cross or break. Richard Ramirez broke them all. And, um, you know, and peddling pornography and, you know, almost kitty porn would um, obviously get him killed as well. So his behavior and the things that he did in here just uh, made him even uh, feel to other people as being a real weirdo. The, the, the main word that was used to describe Richard Ramirez was a creep. That's what guys thought of him. He was a creep. Can you describe his kind of physical demeanor, um, just kind of how he conducted himself on a on a person-to-person basis? I mean, was he clean? Was he... Uh, did he have any friends that were fellow psychos, anything like that? Yeah. He's a, let's start with his appearance. His appearance, very skinny, tall guy, greasy black hair, unkept, unclean, normally didn't go to the shower. He would bird bath in his cell. Stench, he stunk. Uh, his teeth are, were in horrible shape. Just, uh, he, the guy got near you. And you'd want to take a shower. That's how creepy this guy was. Now, in terms of his fellow uh, buddies I used to hang around with, I can give you the name of a couple of them. Larry Bittaker, another serial killer that they ran kind of the, the porn industry in, in, on the row, and they had customers in that particular genre, which were other serial killers. So the people that would speak to him were basically people that were in that same type of state of mind. Um, most serial killers stay to themselves. They try not to get noticed. Richard Ramirez didn't care because he was not afraid to go out. He never went outside, so he had no fear. He knew he wasn't gonna. No one was ever gonna assault him, so he just stayed in his cell. But um, yeah, unkept, dirty is what I would say. Was there a story? It was one of the guards or or someone at some point found his collection of porno mags and he had cut the eyes out of all of the women or something like that yeah that's actually true because they have large searches on the row you know a couple times a year and uh, I actually witnessed that they the, the guards had gone the staff members had gone into a cell and they kind of made a big deal of it they pulled the books out and as they came near ourselves the books were open and all the eyes were cut out of the women in the pornography he had. 
And if you remember back, he did cut the eyes out of some of his, out of his one of his victims during his crime spree as a serial killer. So all that stuff kind of just it reminds you of what he did, and that he continued with these type of behaviors throughout his time in prison because he had no remorse. He really, I don't, you know, he had no value for human life. A, a lot of people on the row, after years or kind of reflection, you know, they kind of get it. Uh, maybe because they were young, they were impulsive, whatever the reason may have been, they were on drugs. With him, there was no remorse. There was nothing. It was just all about what he wanted to do. And the fame that he got from him, he got a lot of different women to come see him. They were all looking for this this glamorous rock star that the media portrayed him to be. Whether they found it or not, I don't know, but the women never lasted. They would be around for a couple of weeks and they'd leave and he'd get new ones. And he'd get, I don't know, three, 400 pieces of mail every week. No one got the kind of uh, mail that he got uh, because of his notoriety as a serial killer. And he loved it. Wow. Even with those teeth, which was kind of part of how he got caught, was his teeth were like these rotten fangs. And then uh, at some point it looked like he got a set of dentures or something. Yeah, but, I mean, if you kind of think about it, you, you um, the media portrayed him as being this rock star, this intelligent, articulate guy that was, you know, a, a basically a rock star. But when you actually see him in person, you realize the guy was illiterate. He couldn't even write. And he did write. He was, his, his penmanship was horrible. He had no education. He didn't try to better himself. As I said, he was just a creep. And, um, you know, I never tried to have a relationship with him. I knew who he was. I saw him. And I, and I watched him. I watched everybody in the row. But um, in terms of ever wanting to talk to him, yeah, that was the last thing I ever wanted to do. The guy's worthless. There was some kind of odd occurrences that were specific to the cell that he had lived in for the majority of that time. Is that right? Right. So, yeah, then we come to this part of the story after um, he had been here and he ends up passing away. Um, and um, I was already in the midst of writing this particular manuscript and book that during a time at the law library, a guy approached me. And to give the audience a kind of a visual, it's not like a library where you would walk in and your friends sitting across from you kind of wave at them. On death row, when you go to the library, you're chained and you're cuffed behind your back. You're taken by escort because everywhere that people on death row go, you're, you're, you have escorts and you're always in cuffs or chained. So you get there and they put you in this very small booth. The booth is probably about three and a half feet by three and a half feet. It has a plexiglass front and bars in the front and concrete on both sides. And they put you in these little booths and by a paging system, you can ask for whatever books you want. And the particular person working that position will give you the book. So everybody's lined up right next to each other. And it was there that um, a guy named Donnie, uh, whose actual name is, his nickname is Powder, uh, approached me about this. And he kind of got my attention. And um, Donnie Page is, uh, for lack of a better word, 
a sociopath, a killer, but he's not a liar. He is, this guy, Donnie Page, is considered to be, in the prison culture, a convict. This guy, if he gives you your word, his word, he's going to keep his word no matter what. He'd he prefer to die than break his word. So just to give you a picture of who this guy is, he's powder white. This guy never gets the sun. Tattoos on his arms, his chest, his back. Um, and he spent a quarter of a century. So let me repeat this. He spent a quarter of a century in the hole. And he spent that time there because he killed other convicts in prison. Now, these weren't guys that you just snuck up on. These weren't little guys. He went up against men that also had knives in their hands when he killed them. This guy's a serious threat. As I said, a sociopath. But, given what I just said, he's extremely honest. And he's extremely well-planted as a man. And I don't mean to sound like this is the kind of guy you want your daughter to date. But in prison, this is the kind of guy that you trust his word because he would never break it. So it was under those circumstances that he calls over to me in the law library and says, Hey, Bill. And I obviously answer, who is that? And he tells me, it's, it's Donnie, it's me, it's Powder. And, and he goes on to ask, hey, is it true? I've heard these rumors. You're writing this book. I want to talk to you. And of course, I remember him because when I got here, he was still in the hole. When I arrived in St. Quentin, I was placed in the hole for nearly a year. He was there. And um, I knew who he was. And he decided then to tell me about his time in cell 110, which was Richard Ramirez's cell. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So he's seeking you out. I'm guessing he probably didn't spend a whole lot of time in the law library, but he knew to find you there. And he kind of like some of the guards knew that you had been working on these stories and he felt the need to get something off his chest, right? Yeah, and he referred to Richard Ramirez as, look, man, I want to talk to you about Brujo. Brujo is the nickname that people on, on death row gave Richard Ramirez. Brujo means witch. So it kind of gives you an idea. Yeah, I mean, that was his nickname on the road, Brujo. And um, I told him, like, you know, give me a second. Let me get the stuff ready. I wasn't expecting to have a story given to me here, but I'm all ears. So that's when he begins to tell me the story and the paranormal uh, activity or situation that he experienced with Richard Ramirez. You have 60 seconds remaining. And I remind you, Richard Ramirez was already dead. And uh, this guy, out of all the stories we've, t- we've so far covered, they were told by prison guards that witnessed it. 
this person is actually telling me a story that happened to him that he's experienced. Powder is this guy is not easily scared, but when he comes to you, you did you get the impression that he that he was scared or bothered or threatened in some way? I would say he was bothered by it. You know, he had been away from that cell some time before he talked to me. So he had, the, you know, the the shock had worn off. And um, so I can't say he was afraid. Uh, I'm not too sure there's too many things to scare Powder. Um, as I mentioned, his resume speaks for itself. But he was disturbed. It bothered him, and he wanted to tell me this tale. So he does exactly that. He, he tells me that in, in 2013, He's finally released from the hole, and after 20-plus years there, you know, he was ready to come out. So the first uh, time in East Block, he notices that it's different. It's cleaner in here as opposed to when he was first here years ago, decades ago. And they give him cell 110 on the fourth tier base side of East Block. And... Um, you know, he gets here, and the first thing he does is he searches the cell. Every good convict's always going to the cell, check it for knives, check it for drugs, check it for cash, because people leave things in hiding spots. He found nothing. So he just continued cleaning the cell like he normally does. And, um, you know, that night, puts everything away, he goes to sleep, and um, around 1.30 in the morning, about a month after he's been in that cell, the toilet suddenly flashed, flushes, and it wakes him up. This is a guy who's always on his game uh, because of who he is. Uh, he starts to fall asleep again, and then his cup falls off the shelf and hits the ground. You know, he gets up, walks back over, puts it on. But you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's it, it, it can happen. So, a few nights later, he wakes up late at night again. His TV, his fan, his radio, everything's on in his bed. You know, he looks at it, he figures, old prison, old circuits, power search, not that big of a deal. He goes to turn the TV off, and before his finger hits the power switch, everything turns off. Again, doesn't think much about it. So um, he goes back to sleep, but this time he begins to have this dream, and it, it goes over next week, the same dream, and in his dream, he's standing over the body of an, a young Asian girl that he knows in his mind, at least as he's having this dream, that he killed and he raped. And let me just say this, Potter has never raped or killed a nine-year-old Asian child. But in the dream, as he looks up in the reflection of the mirror, he sees the, the, the reflection that looks back at him, and the reflection is of Richard Ramirez, the serial killer. So in his dream, he's, he's trying to wake up. You know, the experience is really upset him, he, but he he can't get out of it. And every time he wakes up, he'd go back to sleep, the same dream would occur. So 
you know, he begins to ask questions after the next couple of weeks of who, who lived in his cell. And he's told that Richard Ramirez did the Night Stalker. And, you know, his response wasn't good. He, you know, he had bad things to say. He's like, oh, this, you know, piece of garbage, you know, child molesting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, still, he's not thinking of anything other than whatever. It's just a coincidence, no big deal. So, over the next few weeks, um, you know, he's, he has this really bad feeling about the cell. And it continues. He says that every night got worse and worse. And during the night, one of those nights, he, he's fully awake suddenly because he felt what he says was a finger running across his face. And that freaked him out. So he jumps out of bed. He's, 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 his uh, heart is hammering in his chest. He's up. He's conscious. He's looking around. He doesn't know what the hell when suddenly, as he's laying there, the blanket's torn from his body, like if somebody grabbed it and took it off of him. And this guy is moving quickly now. He is up. He is, you know, in a fighting position. He doesn't know what's going on. He's thinking maybe a guard opened the door, came in a cell. They're trying to harm him. So he is on full alert. He's not dreaming, but he's, he's alone. There's not even a cell. The blanket's on the floor. He knows that something brushed against his face, and he swore it was a fingertip or a hand across his face. Um, it, it's bugging the hell out of him. He's scared. At that point, he is scared, and um, he knew it was something evil. He just didn't know what was going on was bothering him, uh, doing something to him, but he felt like he was in danger. So, um, I mean, this guy is, as I said, he doesn't scare easy. The following day, he gets out of the cell. He has to get out. He goes to the walk-alone cage because because he has murdered people in prison. He's not allowed to go to a regular yard. So he goes to the walk-alone cages where he exercises by himself. When he returns to his cell, which is 110, the sunshine, which comes in from the east, on the walls, huge windows, and they reflect into the light, into the cell. He was able to look at the cell from a certain angle. He noticed on the roof of his cell, meaning the, where you're standing inside the cell, if you touch the top of your cell, there's a roof. There was some kind of object there, and he could see it because the reflection of the light was in a certain position. As soon as they let him back in his cell, he really he turns all the lights on. He starts inspecting it. He grabs a green pad, which is a scrub pad, and he begins to scrub the roof. When he starts to do this, the paint starts coming away. In prison, they give you water-soluble paint. They never give you the good stuff because people sniff it. People do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. It's flammable, so they don't want us to have any of that stuff. So as he's taking the paint off, he notices that there is a circle drawn in red paint on his ceiling. And he keeps scrubbing until the paint comes off and he's left looking at a large pentagram uh, drawn out in red paint with symbols and everything. And 
didn't have a good feeling about this. And um, he just has this feeling of whatever's above is below. And he said he don't know, he doesn't know why he got that impression, but he looked under his bunk where he, had, where he sleeps. It's a metal bunk, and there's also this whitish paint on there. He goes under there and he begins to scrub, and again, he finds another pentagram in red paint. Now he's really freaked out. He's like, oh shit, this is not good. Um, the only difference with each pentagram was were that the letters and symbols were different for the one on his roof and the one under his bunk. So he just decided to the hell with this. He gets the green pad and begins to scrub the pentagram as hard as he can. He, he says that as he was doing that, it felt like there was thousands of ants or bugs crawling all over his arms until he finally broke the circle of the pentagram and there was kind of a sigh in the air, like something had been broken. Once he finished there, he did the roof as well. And it just, he said it sell lost a little bit of that feeling that he had when he first got there and he had over the last few weeks. Um, so, you know, he figures, okay, I'm done. Whatever that was, it's done. Uh, that wrong feeling was gone from that cell. Later that night, he goes to bed, and um, you know, it starts up again. He goes to use the toilet. It's about 2 a.m., and as he's using the bathroom, he had a mirror on the back wall of his cell, which a lot of guys do shave to look at themselves in the mirror to comb their hair. And as he looks in the mirror to look at himself, he can see behind him, which is the front of the door. The front of the door, there's movement there. He looks again, and just outside his door, he sees Richard Ramirez standing there watching him. <laughs> and it freaked him out. He just turned around. He felt such a fear, so intense grip him that he, he actually urinated his shorts. He sees Richard Ramirez as though he were still alive and just a skin and bones person staring at him. Yeah, and, and Richard Ramirez is outside of the cell, meaning he's standing outside the door, but he's looking into his old cell where Powder is standing. Um, you know, I, he, but then he turns around and he looks at the front of the door and there's nobody there. So he, he again, looks into the mirror. This time, Richard Ramirez He's standing there with a smirk on his face, and he has his hand up, and he has that red pentagram painted on his hand, the one he just destroyed. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. So, you know, he, he looks back at the door, and there's nobody there. So, so this is know, a lot. Like this is a lot to take in. Right. This is a lot to take in. Absolutely. And then he says that the lights begin to dim and flicker. And that's when that coldness descends on him. And how he described to me, he said, it was such a numbing cold that he could feel it inside his heart. 
It was not a normal cold. He could see his breath, but the, the, his chest felt like it was being constricted. So he takes, I guess, a chance because he can't see anything behind him. He looks in the mirror again, and that's when he almost screams. Just inside the cell, Richard Ramirez is standing now, inside the cell. And it just, he turns again to see this guy that's obviously there. You see him in the mirror, and there's nobody there. And he just, he doesn't know what to do. He's turned around. He doesn't want to look in the mirror. But as he looks, as he turns to walk away, he does look in the mirror. But this time, the shock is completely where he is taken by emotion and by fear. And he does actually utter a half scream because in the mirror, now that he's looking at, he's no longer longer looking at himself. The reflection in the mirror is of Richard Ramirez. Powder, Donnie Page is looking in the mirror and the reflection he sees is Richard Ramirez as himself. And how does that strike you? Odd. Does he wonder if he's hallucinating it? Or is how is he kind of coming to terms with this? Or is he just his heart's racing and he's freaking out? Well, he's scared. And I asked him about this specifically. I said, what did you feel? He said, he said that he felt that this was a, a ghost and it was trying to do him harm. And this was not a figment of his imagination. It wasn't, you know, any drugs that he was under the influence. He wasn't taking any drugs. He said... There was a cold, a coiled darkness that seemed to be there, waiting for him to make a mistake to do something to him. And he was scared. He knew that this was a supernatural uh, event or a paranormal activity. And this cold phenomenon is that's been experienced in, I think, every story we've covered so far. Yeah, no, absolutely. It has been. Let me call back. Normally, I would think someone would run away, but unfortunately, he's stuck in a cell with this thing. Yeah, he, um, yeah, at one point, he got, he, you know, the cell's not very big, nine and a half feet by four and a half feet. He doesn't have a lot, a lot of place to go. So he, he kind of steps to the center of his cell, and he sits in his bunk. He doesn't want to get too close to the door. He doesn't want to get too, too close to the mirror. He said that a few minutes later, the coldness went away. That tension that he felt before was gone. So the first thing he did was he walked to the wall, he grabbed the mirror, and he snapped it in two, snapped it in two again, and snapped it again. Threw it in the toilet and got away from the, the cell front, and he just sat there without moving for the rest of the night until the sun came up. And... The first thing he did was he demanded to be moved out of that cell. And um, ever since that night, he's moved to the other side of the building. I've spoken to him a number of times. Actually, I spoke to him yesterday. I asked him, had he experienced anything like that again? I actually told him that I was doing um, the Death Row Diaries podcast and we'd be speaking about this story. And you know, most people that I've noticed, when you, you tell them that you're going to do something where it kind of brings them to light or what they say, they get kind of happy. 
and they're excited about it. None of that was present with him. He just seemed very somber. He kind of nodded. He said, um, you know, the, that, that uh, situation wasn't right. He was very, very quiet about it. It just it felt like it was a bad experience for him, and it really left an impression on him. Now, I will say this, that since I wrote this manuscript, I've continued to investigate paranormal activity again on death row. And um, I have another 11 stories. Two of those stories, again, involve this apparition, this ghost, this whatever you want to call it, that has the face of Richard Ramirez. Two other people have given me full stories about them experiencing this kind of phenomena and um, a number of other stories that were not as clear and I just didn't think they were story worthy. But this happens a lot on death row, uh, not just with Richard Ramirez, but as we have discussed in the past and as his book illustrates, this, this book actually has uh, nine stories of paranormal activity, as well as, you know, the, the history of San Quentin, which has a number of paranormal activities over the, well, the past century and a half plus. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely something bad going on here. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of freaky because you, you kind of wonder. We, we were trying to get through with each other today, and the phone wouldn't cooperate. And you, you kind of wonder, don't you? Like, okay, what is it? I mean, the phone was working fine before you and I started talking about this phenomenon, and then it starts cutting off, and, and your equipment doesn't work well. Coincidence? Maybe. What do you think? Other people, when they saw this Richard Ramirez, um, whatever it may be, was it the same as the powder guy described as it being just sort of a, a human figure? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously just a, an image of him. Um, they did say that he was very clear. It wasn't like a, an apparition, a ghostly thing where you see, like, translucent. He looked solid to them. And um, they said that he was, uh, you know, not to give away too much, we don't want to give him everything, but that he gave off a smell that they, it bothered them. Potter did not speak about the smell. These other guys did speak about a smell. And, it's, and it's, it, they said it was kind of like almost a rotted, uh, pungent smell that accompanied him. And, yeah, it just very clearly said very, uh, it was like me standing in front of you. And it bothered them a lot. They had a lot of different things happen, bouncing balls, something would fall off the shelf, coldness. Some of the things that Potter talked about, but different circumstances. And so the, it would be difficult to prove beyond his word that he saw this Ramirez character. Um, but I, I'm trying to make sense of the pentagrams. Those were not... Um, those were not paranormal. Those were actual real things that presumably Ramirez painted in the cell. 
yeah, from what I understand, you know, he, he did practice uh, Satanism. He had a black Bible. He had a number of those things. And, and I know that, that they, he did have them there because on a number of occasions I looked into his cell and I saw what was in his cell, um, and I saw that book there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what, what can I say about this thing? These are the stories that people tell you. It's very hard to pinpoint paranormal activity and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt or a scientific fact. Um, you go from the stories people tell you. Um, but what I have done is I've kind of cross-referenced what people have told me, and I haven't shared these stories with the next guy. So when guys give you kind of consistent uh, tales about the same almost thing and a lot of... Um, consistencies in their stories, and then the overall character of the person that I've known over the past, say, 25, 30, 33 years, you kind of have a pretty good idea who's shooking and jiving and who's actually telling you something by his demeanor, if he's afraid, or how he talks about it. Remember, these stories didn't come easily. These guys were afraid. Most guys in this culture are macho guys who never want to admit that they're afraid of anything, much less talk about paranormal this or that, because it just doesn't fit their profile. So when they come out with a story like this and they tell me what's going on, I pay a lot of attention to their their demeanor, their consistency, who they are, and how I've known them to act in situations to give credibility to a story. A lot of the stories that I got, I never used because they weren't complete stories. Powders was complete. And as I said, the guy's a sociopath. He's a killer. But as crazy as it may sound, he's trustworthy. If he kills somebody, he'll tell you, yeah, I did it. You know, no problem. Yeah, I did it. That kind of gives you a, a bit of the honesty about, well, the truth is he doesn't give a damn. He doesn't give a damn. He'll tell you what he did. So that's why I'm these guys that I've used in all these stories, I knew very well. And that's why I use these stories, because I trusted their word. And then, of course, there is the fact that I have researched San Quentin as carefully as anybody can. And I have found documented proof in the San Francisco Chronicle, the ledgers of San Quentin from the beginning of paranormal activity, as we talked about Amos Luntz, the first executioner, We've talked about a number of situations where influence makes these guys do these great feats of violence, and they testify that they were possessed. You even have the warden of St. Quentin taken out of here in the 1800s by gunpoint because he was murdering inmates. So you have a lot of different... This is a bad place. Look, Matt, I mean, we've heard about it, right? You told me about a story about an asylum asylum up here. That was just an asylum sound that you know that lasted 30, 40 years, and there was a people, maybe a couple of people torture, maybe some people that were crazy. You're talking about a place that existed for more than 165 years, a place that its foundation is built on murder, torture, fear, executions. Should I go on? Yeah, and a, a place where Ramirez is your neighbor. Right? And most of them take place, obviously, on death row. Here's another one for you. We are sitting on top of three cemeteries. St. Quint has three cemeteries on the grounds. 
One of them is Booth Hill. The old hospital where many people talk about paranormal activity happening is another one. And the third one is right here in East Block. We're sitting on top of a graveyard. And that isn't the perfect ground for, of the fertile ground for paranormal, for doorways, for something to come through. This is the place. And let's talk about a little bit about Canteen, the Miwok shaman warrior who died here, and all his, his men were murdered here. And that, this is where the story begins. San Quentin is, is named after Quintin. They misspelled it. Q-U-E-N-T-I-N is a misspelling of his name. And they added San as St. Quentin because they were naming new ports here. And they, they, they named this peninsula San Quentin. But it was actually named Punta de Cantin. That was the original name of this place. I mean, the beginning of this place is just bloodshed. Even though physically the guys on death row weren't afraid of Ramirez, he wasn't a tough guy, and they beat him up and stabbed him. But are they, even if they might not admit it, afraid of that type of evil? Yeah. The, yes. The guys on death row, some. They're bad people. But no one's going to argue that. They're bad people. But they fear something supernatural in a different way than most people because they've killed, they have a conscience. I'm sure that in their minds they're wondering, is this thing or whatever it is coming after them because of what they did in their former life? Meaning, as a person on the street, the murders, torture, and the things that they've done. So yeah, Richard Ramirez was not a scary guy in the physical, but in the spiritual sense or the supernatural sense, he was a malignant personality. He was an evil guy. He couldn't physically harm you if he was here because he didn't have a 22 and there are no guns in prison. He didn't have that state of mind. But if looks could kill and he could have his way, he would have probably killed everybody here and enjoyed it. So you have a really mal malignant, malcontent guy who's wishing bad, and maybe he felt like he had unfinished business here, or whatever it may be, but that he walks the halls of death row tells you the kind of unfinished business he had. Maybe he hated the guys who made him into a victim. He loved to victimize people. He loved to control people. For 20-plus years, he was controlled by the guys on death row. They didn't allow him to go outside. If they did, they would kill him. He was not allowed to do anything because they were there to make sure he didn't. I can yeah. see that being a reason to have unfinished business. To have a grudge. Absolutely, right? A grudge. So, so yeah. with, with his devil worshipping and occult things that he was into... Um, was that an act, do you think, or was he actually serious about that stuff? He had 60 seconds remaining. You know, it's hard to tell what was an act with this guy, but he had the books. You know, there was it photo ops when he, you know, put his fist up and, and he used the pentagram on his, the palm of his hand. You know, I don't know. Um, I never had a chance, nor did I want the chance to talk to this guy. 
but from all evidence, what I witnessed, what I saw, um, this guy worshipped the devil. He, he was a Satanist, and, and this is what he believed. And he really had no conscience for anything else. Hi. Yeah, that that story was quite disturbing. Yeah, I, mean, I think every time I tell it, 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 it does bug me. And I know that tonight when I go to bed, I'm gonna, it's going to be on my mind. It, 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 I mean, it really does bug me. I don't know why it does so much. I, you know, I've had this story in this book in my head now for a couple of, you know, for a couple of years now, and it, it just bugs the hell out of me. That, that one probably more than all of them. I don't know why. I think maybe because Ramirez was really evil, but he was also kind of an insidious jerk. Like, he, he kind of taunted people, you know? He kind of really was into himself. And like you said, he never had any remorse. So, I mean, what would make him more happy than torturing people, you know? Yeah, they continue bringing fear and, con and controlling other people's lives by with fear. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird that that um, his story it does leave such an impression on me, uh, and probably because he also lived on my tier not too far away, and um, and just it, it just never seems to leave me. But yeah, so I guess we'll be back next week with another horrifying story that you're uh, all too familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to it, and um, yeah, I can't wait for the audience to hear what we have to talk about next, whether it be occurrences on death row, uh, of the paranormal uh, kind, or just um, the violence and the difference between um, death row and the rest of St. Quentin and the people that are here. Yeah, I guess we'll see you next time. Should we sign off? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara from San Quentin's Death Row. And this is Death Row Diaries. <laughs>